the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie. He's a professor of history at Wheaton College. Also the author of a new book called We the Fallen People, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy. Tracy, how are you doing today? I am doing fine, Brian. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. For we We're excited to talk to you about the book, but Aubrey and I both are, are graduates of Wheaton College, where you are, so it's always cool. good to talk to uh, somebody else from the college. Uh, Tracy, before we get into the book, which looks great, could you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure, I'm, I'm glad to. Yes, uh, I'm Tracy McKenzie. I go by that middle name. I teach in the history department at, at Wheaton College. Uh, I have been a, a college or university professor now for 34 years, and uh, I focus primarily on U.S. history, and uh, particularly uh, I try to write for the church about what it means to remember the past faithfully and, and actually why we need to, to work on that. Oh, it sounds so interesting, Tracy. And we're so glad to have you to talk about your new book, We the People, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy. Can you talk to us about what led to your interest in democracy and sharing it specifically in the context of political polarization, which we all have been living through for the past couple of years? Haven't we all? Sure, uh, Aubrey. Yeah. Uh, so I've been teaching on American democracy really for about three decades. And uh, for much of that time, I was teaching in a secular environment. I taught at a, a state university for uh, more than 20 years. Uh, and so I, I felt uh, a great need to be able to uh, think about it from an explicitly Christian point of view. And since coming to Wheaton, that's something I've been able to do more and more. And so I've been wanting to write on the topic for a long time because I actually don't think we do a very good job of thinking Christianly about democracy. Uh, and then precisely because of the polarization that you allude to, uh, it just struck me that this was this was the moment when, when the need was great and I couldn't justify um, really putting it off any longer. Mm. Tracy, what we hear a lot these days from Christians and in the church, I'm sure you've heard it more than a few times, uh, is that Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. Christians should kind of pull themselves out. Obviously, that's not something you believe. But how do you answer other Christians who say, hey, I'm just completely apolitical. I'm not going to get involved in all that stuff. Well, I think my first uh, uh, answer, Brian, was uh, was that we actually are taking a political position hmm. uh, by our behavior uh, necessarily. And hmm. in fact, uh, a, a decision not to become involved is a decision of its own kind. Uh, I think that as citizens of a free society, you could argue that uh, we we have a kind of obligation. But but I actually start with uh, the commandment to to love neighbor. Uh, mm. That there are many ways that we love neighbor, uh, but one of those is by seeking the common good through the individuals that we elect and the kinds of public policies that we promote. So I I wouldn't um, much be much sympathetic with the argument that Christians ought not to to be politically involved, mm-hmm. where I think we need to really be very concerned 
is that we not let any political movement or figure or party become a kind of, of idol. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we always want to be alert uh, to that because that is sort of in our fallenness. That's something yeah. that we're, we're prone to. Oh, that's good. I actually wanted to talk to you about that. Your title, We the Fallen People, such a uh, really intriguing, in- intriguing title for the book. Can you talk to us about why you want us to redefine ourselves as the fallen people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it starts with, with my belief that that's what Scripture teaches mm-hmm. about who we are. <clears throat> There's this sort of two-edged uh, coin. Uh, we're both image bearers of, of sort of incalculable preciousness and value, but we're flawed image bearers. Yeah. We're, we're scarred by sin. Uh, we uh, have the predisposition to selfishness, to seek our own welfare above those around us, to make false things into gods. Mm. Uh, and so um, where that relates to our political involvement um, is, is that when we think about politics, and I think particularly when we think about democracy and what makes it function, we are always uh, bringing some assumptions about uh, human nature to bear, even if we're not really conscious about that. Mm. Uh, I I start the book, or early on in the book, I refer to a wonderful uh, insight from C.S. Lewis, who many years ago said, you know, there's really just two main reasons that you would ever believe in majority rule. And one of those is that you have great confidence in human nature. You, Mm -hmm. You think people are so naturally wise and good that the Uh, public welfare would suffer if everyone's voice is not heard. Mm. The other view is that you think we are fallen, that we're uh, prone to selfishness, which means that no one of us or no small group of us can be trusted to exercise authority over everyone else. Mm. Uh, And I would argue that our country was founded on that latter view. I think the founders of the country and the authors of the Constitution absolutely took uh, our fallen human nature seriously. Mm. But I would argue that we have long since largely, as a country, abandoned that mm. and embraced the idea that the reason we should believe in democracy is that we are all essentially good by nature. Mm. Mm. And Tracy, uh, I've got teenage kids at home, and one of the things you hear is that often, I'm sure you hear this in colleges, that, that kind of that next generation, there's kind of a little bit of a bent towards some thoughts of socialism and other things. Now, you've written extensively on democracy. When you hear that in the classroom, what, what's your response maybe to that college student who's like, I'm not sure democracy is the best way to go? Well, you know, it's very interesting that you asked that, Brian. And the fact is that if you look at survey data, there is a clear correlation between your views on democracy and your age. Oh. So if you were born, Yeah, if you were born before World War II, uh, surveys suggest that at least three quarters of respondents will say it is imperative to live in a democratic society to have a, a good life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you were born after 1990, that drops to about one third. Really? Wow. Uh, which is really uh, concerning because, after all, we're talking about the, the future of the country in, yeah. that, in that rising generation. So I, I do think that for individuals, let's say, born after 1990, uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the end of the Cold War, there's just not that sense of uh, a free society, a democratic society being precious and rare. Uh, and I think it's much easier to think that it's something to take for granted. Mm-hmm. And as we take it for granted, we're less and less aware of the kinds of privileges that it affords us. Yeah. Uh, and so it's perhaps not too surprising that we see that significant fall off. Fascinating. Uh, and so to answer your question, Brian, I tell my students they need to study more history. <laughs> uh, that, you know, that, that it, it is our appreciation of the past and our knowledge of the past that gives us a perspective that's broader than yes. our own particular moment in time. 
Oh, that's really good. Again, uh, Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie, he's professor of history at Wheaton College, also the author of a new book called We the Fallen People. And I wonder about this. What is the role? What is the importance of studying history? Some people are probably like, you know, it's all about what's next. It's all about what's in front of us. But there's a obviously you believe strongly in the role of history. So help people understand why history is so important. Yeah, I'll just, I just I could talk to you about that for a very long time. But it would be the, the, short, the short answer. Uh, I just I don't think we can understand ourselves by ourselves. Uh, the, the reality is when we're stranded in a particular moment in time, uh, there are so many things about our particular moment that we will take for granted that we will assume are just sort of the way things the world always is. Mm. And, you know, Paul exhorts us not to be conformed to the world. He exhorts us elsewhere to think, take every thought captive uh, in obedience to Christ. We we just can't do that without a historical perspective. Uh, The reality is it's only when we step out of our moment in time that we can see our world really with sort of new eyes. Mm. We can ask ourselves, okay, so so why is it that I take this way of thinking and being for granted? And I think what we learn is, is that as often as not, uh, we think a certain way because of the, the sort of context into which we were born, hmm. much more than that we have uh, deeply wrestled with Scripture and built um, sort of a logical foundation from there. Mm, interesting. And then, Tracy, I wanted to go back to your book a little bit, We the Fallen People, the Founders and the Future of American Democracy, because I know one of the things you write about is just the political polarization that is dividing us so bitterly right now. Do you have any thoughts on how we do better? I, I, I do, uh, and I, I share them with trepidation because I think uh, some folks will, will find them naive. But I think mm. it starts with, I think it really starts with acknowledging our own sin nature. Mm. Uh, so much of our political involvement or political rhetoric this, these days seems to take for granted that if we could just elect the right person, put the right uh, party in, in power, uh, that all our problems go away. Right. Uh, and, and what we're essentially doing is we're externalizing any sort of evil, any ster- sort of uh, reasons for uh, problems in our society from outside our own hearts. And so I think it starts there. When we take our own sinfulness seriously, it ought to lead to a measure of humility mm. uh, that I think is lacking in a lot of our political debates today. Yeah. And then the other side of that is we need to absolutely, again, feel the preciousness of the image of God uh, in all those around us, including, in particular, including the folks that we disagree with politically. Mm. Uh, and I think when we do that, it, it leads to perhaps a measure of charity in the way that we speak of others that's lacking. And so the reality is, I hate to say it, and it, sounds, it can sound too... Um, too negative, but when I when I look at our political rhetoric today, I see a culture that neither believes in original sin nor the image of God. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and that's that's a more powerful testimony than almost anything else that we're going to be wow. uh, talking about in the public square. Wow. That's good, Tracy. Um, you know, we we see a lot of Christians right now, and a lot of churches kind of fighting against the government, and we see you know all everything from COVID to other things. What what? To, how do you describe how the church should relate to the government? Where do we you know just kind of say, well, you know, we're give to Caesar what is Caesar, and when do we push back? How do you how do you yeah. think about that with the church and government? Well, that's a great question, uh, Brian. And the thing I want to say up front is I do think it's a question to some degree that Christians can, uh, will definitely, and can faithfully disagree on. Mm. Uh, And so I want to say that right at at the front end. But here is one thing I do feel very strongly about. Uh, I think much of the political debate today has a very impoverished understanding of liberty. 
Mm. So when I hear in particular Christians pushing it back against the government because uh, their rights in some way are being violated, uh, sometimes that really gives me pause. Because again, when we step out of our particular moment in time and think about how liberty has been understood by Christians historically, uh, my favorite example here is the pastor of the Pilgrims, a man named John Robinson, who was the Pilgrims pastor in Holland in the early 17th century. Hmm. He said a Christian's liberty uh, is to serve God and love his neighbor. Uh, And if we are in a situation where we can serve God and love neighbor, we have the fullest enjoyment of liberty that we could hope for. Wow. So liberty, I love the title of your program. Liberty is all about the freedom to serve the common good. It was never meant to be the freedom to do whatever serves your own interests. Oh, so good. Uh, And we just need to recapture that as as a people. And we'll still disagree upon some things. But I think that would absolutely transform our Mm. public conversation Mm. if we just uh, sort of recaptured that sense of of what liberty really is about. Mm. I feel like you're preaching to us. You're not just a history professor. I get all worked up about that. Sorry. I like it. I like the passion. Okay, so speaking of the public discourse, what do you hope this book contributes to the present dialogue that's occurring right now, specifically on social media about democracy? Yeah. Well, I, I just I hope, if, if nothing else, that we would uh, stop before we hit send yeah. uh, on go. those posts yeah. uh, and, and think, OK, what is my language saying uh, about this person that I disagree with? Not not the particular policy that we're arguing about. What is it? What is it? What am I testifying to about their worth before God? Mm. Uh, am, am I? Um, Am I saying, Father, I'm so thankful that I'm not like them? Mm-hmm. Uh, or am I saying, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, wow. uh, a sinner? Uh, and, and, of course, too often than not, uh, our interactions are mean-spirited, they're harsh, uh, and they are emerging from a posture of uh, moral superiority, mm. uh, which not only, I think, is false before God, but it's not likely to be very effective in persuading our fellow citizens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tracy, you're a professor, so you said you've done it at a state school, you're at Wheaton College. What is, uh, I, I guess I'm curious, just your thoughts on the next generation, those college students you deal with, how do they view the government? How do they view politics? Are they engaged? Are they cynical? Uh, a little bit of everything? Help us understand those college kids. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know that I have my uh, thumb on their pulse exactly, but I, I see a range of views. I, th- I see uh, an awful lot of... Um, uh, idealism still, mm. uh, individuals who want to go to Washington and be part of something that will, you know, a- absolutely serve the common good. Uh, but then uh, at a place like Wheaton, a lot of individuals really don't expect that to happen through political channels. Right. And so they're, you know, they're the ones that are looking for ministry opportunities mm. and nonprofit organizations and so forth. So I, I still see a range and hopefully uh, what is encouraging to me, I still see the desire to make a difference right. and the belief that it's possible to make a difference. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Tracy, we know you're not a pastor, but this is a, a question we like to ask Christians and thinkers who are on the show. Do you feel hopeful for the state of the church right now, especially with all of the polarization you're seeing? Oh, man, that's a great question. You know, I, I think that hope is a Christian virtue, and, and, and we remind ourselves to be hopeful because we believe that God uh, is sovereign and God is good. That's different from looking just at the uh, circumstances that surround us and right. say, you know, is this encouraging or not? I mean, right. I, I think there's right. every reason 
to be somewhat discouraged right now uh, in, in the in the short term, uh, and I think we purpose through the grace of God to uh, to be hopeful. I am very concerned about the testimony of the church to the world around us yeah. because of our internal divisions, because yeah. of um, sort of the bitterness and acrimony with which we express ourselves. I, I am I am troubled. Mm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie, he's a professor of history at Wheaton College, also the author of a new book called We the Fallen People, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy. We'd encourage you to go pick that up. You can also find Tracy's blog, Faith and History, at faithandamericanhistory.wordpress.com. Again, it's faithandamericanhistory.wordpress.com. One more spot you can find them on Facebook at R. Tracy McKenzie. Tracy, uh, as we said, always good to have a prof from the alma mater on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more than that, this has been really helpful as we as Christians wrestle with how, how do we interact politically uh, right now. This has been wonderful, really helpful. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Brian and Aubrey. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. Brian, there's a new movie that came out over the weekend. I wonder if you've watched it yet. It is called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, mm-hmm. Tammy Faye's Eyes. I actually talked about this movie with Tyler Huckabee when oh, you were out right after your book I missed came that. out. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, because he had interviewed the actress who plays Tammy Faye Baker in... Jessica Chastain. That's right, in the movie... And uh, it's going to be a fascinating movie. Uh, Aubrey, you weren't here that day, so I was telling them that I can vividly remember my family on more than one occasion went to the PTL theme park. So you've said this before, and I didn't even know that this theme park existed. It didn't just exist. It dominated. It was like Christian theme park. So that was all Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Like they, They broadcast out of this entire, like complex theme park like you'd go stay no there it was way. really cool was it, was it in a, new jersey no, is that what you Carolina, went oh okay i think and you would go there and you would uh but they had an enormous water park that was awesome fun and it was they had this thing called main street usa that you'd walk down and yeah. you'd get, it was like it was supposed to be the wholesome fun and okay was, yeah but then they would also broadcast their show How from cool. there so i have vivid memories of jim and tammy faye baker but of those of you who don't know them they were like the poster children for the bad televangelists in the right, mid-80s right. who got really rich. You might remember when it all came crashing yeah. down. There were stories of air-conditioned dog houses and mm. all this kind of stuff. Uh, but Tammy Faye Baker became a real caricature because she was yeah. very heavily makeup, right. lots of crying. And so uh, all the time on Saturday Night Live, they parody her and yeah. all this other stuff. Yeah. And she ended up, Jim Baker went to prison. They got divorced. She got remarried and ended up dying of cancer. But the point of the movie, I think, is to say... There's a lot more complexity yes. to Tammy Faye Baker yes. or whatever her n- new married name was. Mm-hmm. I think it's Mesner. That's right. There was a lot more complexity to her than uh, big makeup, big hair, right. easily crying, trying right. to trying to steal money from people. They're saying no. She was uh, she she actually was a lot more complex. A lot more good things about her. Yeah. Her son has come out. And talked about the movie as well. So it's just really interesting. I think I actually want to go see the movie just because. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting movie. There's actually a little bit of audio that I wanted to play you from Christianity Today. Ted Olson um, sat down to talk about this movie and to talk about how we have gotten Tammy Faye wrong. Some of the things that you were just talking about that maybe there was more than meets the eye and. 
we unfortunately villainized her. So mm-hmm. let's go ahead and listen to some of that audio. In this third decade of the 21st century, we've seen a lot of religious scandals with Christian leaders abusing their power and position. Too many. Nevertheless, still to this day, when you say the words religious scandal, more often than not, folks will think of two television personalities of the 1970s and 80s, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. The Jim and Tammy show is the basis of what became a massive ministry and theme park in Fort Mill, South Carolina. And it was called PTL, an abbreviation that stood both for praise the Lord and people that love. Then came revelations that PTL had been massively and illegally misusing funds, diverting church money to pay for their extravagant lifestyle of the bakers and selling more lifetime vacations at a theme park than theme park could possibly support. About the same time, the Charlotte Observer also revealed that Jim Baker had been engaging in extramarital sex and that ministry funds had been used for hush money. The Assemblies of God kicked them out of the denomination and Jim Baker went to jail. During Jim's imprisonment, the couple divorced, and Tammy Faye became kind of a campy celebrity, appearing in a VH1 reality TV show. She hosted a syndicated talk show. She became kind of a gay icon. In the year 2000, seven years before her death, a documentary came out called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, narrated by drag queen superstar RuPaul. Last week, a biopic based on that documentary came out with the same title, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. It's directed by Michael Showalter and stars Jessica Chastain and is getting a fair bit of buzz for its highly sympathetic portrayal of Tammy Faye as a misunderstood and maligned Christian woman. So I think that's the piece that is interesting, that she she's now being reframed as yeah. a misunderstood, misaligned Christian woman. And the reality is she's sort of one in a line of like Monica Lewinsky, Britney Spears, some of these folks that really um, we... Uh, went after, villainized, and now we're looking back at their story saying, did we do them wrong? Yeah, there's actually, and, and I, yeah, villainized is a good word. I think also just caricatured, right? Like when Britney Spears shaved her head, remember when mm-hmm. crazy she took that baseball bat and was hitting the car and stuff? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden the narrative was done. Britney Spears is crazy. Right, and that was it. She was a child star. This is everything that's wrong with mm-hmm. child stars because she was in the Mickey Mouse Club and right. all this stuff. Right, Monica Lewinsky, uh, she got almost maybe not almost i think that you can make a make a case that she got villainized more yes. for what happened with president clinton than president clinton oh, did she definitely even though did. if that happened now that would not hopefully right. be the case right uh, and then Tammy Faye Baker, I think it's I think this is something about the way we caricature people yeah. and just go this one thing this yeah. one element this one whatever is who that person is right. and i think that's why these things are interesting you can even think of people on the other end of the spectrum. I think this is what made uh, – remember last year we talked about how there was two things about Mr. Rogers that came out, uh, two movies. There was mm-hmm. a documentary. Yes, and I yes. think that's what made that interesting is because those added more context to him who we probably made overly positive. Right. right? Like right. we caricatured him as just as, right. hey, everybody, right. I love everybody. And right. There was, there was some complexity yeah. to him like there is to everybody. I think it's a good reminder to ask, okay – Every nobody is as good as we probably make them, mm-hmm. and nobody's as bad as we make mm. them. So let's try to dig down deep, especially you know, especially if they haven't killed somebody or done this. Like let's yeah, let's ask. There's there's got to be more to these stories and try to unpack them. I think that's what makes these stories really fascinating. But I think especially us as Christians, just in our day to day lives, be careful about 
caricaturing people, yeah, villainizing absolutely. groups of people. Absolutely. Uh, because that's just not that's not the way of Jesus. And I right. think we got to be really careful with that. And it's not the whole picture either. And I think another question that, that I'm asking hearing these stories is why is the media so quick to do this to women? I'm not saying they mm-hmm. don't do this to men because certainly they do, but it does seem like there's a long line of women that the media specifically picked on, especially in a certain day and age and said, they're the villains. Something's wrong with them. Like you just, I've said about Bill Clinton, like, I, I mean, I can remember hearing p- people applaud him. He was just a stud, you yeah, know, and yeah. meanwhile, she's like brushed aside and completely bullied. I don't think that could happen in this day and age, at least not publicly, yeah, certainly yeah. privately it could. But, um, I, you know, I think that's another thing. Why do we feel like it's OK to do this to women? And then, like you said, Brian, we shouldn't do this to anybody, mm-hmm. especially as Christian. Our, our Christians, our role is to see everyone is created in the image of God. Certainly we can look critically at um, people, at their mistakes, especially right. people in power, especially Christian leaders, religious leaders in power. Certainly there are things about Jim and Tammy Faye worth critiquing and learning from. But I 100%. do. Do you think this movie will be interesting to see if it gives some more compassion to her story? And um, in one sense, I wonder, yeah, I, I just think it'll be interesting. Maybe it'll open our eyes a little I think bit. It'll be fascinating to hear from her ex-husband. Will we ever hear from him? He's still alive. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. He's out of prison now. He's a little bit back in the game of okay. raising money and doing oh, some stuff. Oh, is he? Okay, And they also have a son named Jay Baker who's very active online. It's okay. kind of gone the other direction. Uh, um, I don't know where he's at in his faith journey, mm-hmm. but he's came out and said some stuff about how his mother was treated and how their family was treated wow. growing up that were really profound and sad. And mm. so I think people should go see this movie. I'll go see this movie uh, and and just allow it to remind us yeah. that none of us are probably need to be defined by our worst mistakes or by that best picture That's we give good, of ourselves. But, yeah. but he, we as human beings, there's a lot more complexity to that. Yeah, that's good. Well, coming up next, we're joined by Alan Cross, the lead pastor of Petaluma Valley Baptist Church in California. He's also the author of When Heaven and Earth Collide, Racism, Southern Evangelicals, and the Better Way of Jesus. We're excited to talk about him when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm. And we are so thrilled today because we're joined by Alan Cross, the lead pastor of Petaluma Valley Baptist Church in Petaluma, California. He's the author of When Heaven and Earth Collide, Racism, Southern Evangelicals, and The Better Way of Jesus. And we are thrilled to talk to him today about his article at The Bulwark, Securing the Border Without Hardening Our Hearts. We might talk to him about some of his other articles as well. Alan, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks, Aubrey. Good to be with you. Alan, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I'm a um, uh, Southern Baptist pastor. Um, I've lived almost all my life in the South, and uh, that's where the majority of my work in ministry has, has been from. Pastor in Montgomery, Alabama for for many years, and I did work throughout the Southeast, um, uh, but based out of Montgomery on behalf of immigrants and refugees as a as an advocate and kind of mobilizer for ministry, um, and was connected with the Montgomery Baptist Association and uh, the Evangelical Immigration Table as well. Work, uh, I worked with them, nice. and uh, but then a, then a couple of years ago, I moved out to uh, to California, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, the North Bay, the pastor pastor Baptist Church out here, and um, so just doing the normal church work, pastor you know pastoring, and through yeah. COVID and all that. Right, right. 
yeah. but also just trying to help um, continue to, to help churches welcome migrants and refugees as they come to us. So, oh, Alan, that is such great work. We're so glad to have you join us. And we're good friends on our show with Matthew Sorens, who comes on from the immigration uh, table and talks yeah. to us a bunch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, yeah, I've worked with Matthew for about about seven years or so. That's oh, awesome. nice. You guys are doing great work. Uh, we wanted to talk to you about that and the article that you wrote uh, about securing the border without hardening our hearts. And you ask, what does the harsh and violent treatment of Haitian migrants say about the soul of America? And before we get into that deeper question, it strikes me, even though it's such a big story, that there's probably a lot of people mm-hmm. out there going, what's the what's going on with Haitian migrants? I haven't heard anything because we get so insulated in our own lives and our own bubble. Could you kind of give us a Reader's Digest version of what is even going on right now? Yes, um, uh, I have a real affinity for for Haiti and for Haitian migrants um, uh, who fled after who fled Haiti after 2010, the earthquake. When the earthquake, uh, the massive seven point earthquake that killed over 200,000 people and wounded 300,000 and displaced about 1.5 million Haitians, mm. um, I, I was there in Port-au-Prince two weeks after the earthquake wow. and, and doing ministry with a medical team and just seeing the devastation firsthand. And then started going back to Haiti with our churches when I was in Alabama, and um, we developed partnerships and developed ministries there, and, and uh, had gone to this day um, uh, friendships and connections. And so, whenever I meet Haitians anywhere, I have this have this real connection with them. And so mm-hmm. I've, I've just kept up with the story. And and so a lot of um, a lot of Haitians fled Haiti after the earthquake just because life was really really difficult, and they had lost everything, and family members killed, and and uh, things like that. And so, but um, a lot of them tra- uh, came to the United States. Uh, others who could did uh, others who could not went to Peru and Chile and uh, um, uh, other parts of South America. Um, some went to Mexico. There were thousands of Haitians who came to our southern border um, uh, from Mexico in 2016 and places like Tijuana, and they weren't able to get across, and so they stayed in Tijuana and they kind of built a Haitian colony there. Hmm. Um, and so, and they continue to communicate uh, uh, throughout the, the Americas um, over over the years, and and so. Um, uh, about two months ago or so, uh, there the were Haitian migrants who began to move north. Uh, some of them receiving word that perhaps they could get through the border. There were, I know there were several hundred or, or perhaps even more Haitians that were allowed through in, in Tijuana um, uh, about six weeks or, so, or maybe eight weeks ago. And so um, whether or not that contributed to the migration, I, I don't know, but there were perhaps signals that were sent. But, um, mm. but thousands of Haitians were, were told by, by, by people, you can come, we'll get you through. Uh, they didn't quite understand everything that was happening, but, but they came to the border seeking asylum, uh, especially after the latest earthquake, the 7.2 earthquake that happened um, in Haiti. Uh, back in August, and then the assassination of the, of the Haitian president. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really thrown things in the turmoil there. I have, I have friends in Haiti that I've spoken to just this past week who have said things are really, really difficult, and mm-hmm. it's really hard um, mm-hmm. for, for life to, to progress. And mm-hmm. and so there's just been incredible suffering, especially yeah. those who fled after 2010. Yeah. They've gone from country to country and, and, and trying to find a place um, uh, that they can be accepted. And they, they've faced incredible discrimination, and, and um, uh, you just just kind of um you know rejection and so they came to us looking looking for refuge and and uh um by and large we're, we're not able to receive it and so many of them have been sent back to haiti and um and have uh, and thousands more have gone back in mexico some uh, some were allowed to come in mm. uh for various reasons but that all happened over the last couple of weeks in del rio texas where there were, were thousands of haitians who gathered together hoping that they could have their asylum claims heard mm. And of course, some of us on social media, many of us on social media saw the images of 
uh, Customs Border Protection agents on horseback swinging what looked like whips, at least at the um, immigrants, the migrants. And it was a really painful thing to see. One of the things that you talk about in this article, Securing the Border Without Hardening Our Hearts, is that for the Haitians who come to our border seeking refuge, you're reminding us that they have suffered more than what most Americans have ever suffered. And the way that we treat them, the way that we see them, says a great deal about our own hearts and our own consciences. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Sure, yeah. Um, You know, for the Christian, uh, you know, and I really try to make this point that having compassion towards people doesn't doesn't mean that everyone can— Everyone who wants to come to the United States can right. or should, right. you know? and it also doesn't mean that we should have borders. Uh, there's a need for order um, um, at uh, at our borders, and mm-hmm. so you know those are are important things. As far as the heart of the, and the heart of the church towards people in need, we should always have a heart of compassion, especially towards children and families and, and those who are clearly vulnerable and clearly desperate. Um, whatever decisions our government makes, um, we can speak into those, but it should start with a heart of compassion. And so. Um, for believers, for Christians, and it's amazing how when I talk about this, people their first thought, um, even if they're if they're a Christian, if they're in church, they're involved in ministry, they do missions, uh, they support missions around the world. So many people, their first thought is about the government and the border and what the government does. And mm-hmm. I, I really want to shift that to let's not first think about the government and border patrol and 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 our, and our border laws. Let's first think about the people and let's first think about our own hearts. And so how we see others, how we see the vulnerable, really speaks to our own. To, to the state of our own heart. And this is all uh, clear, really, uh, through, all throughout Scripture. Uh, yeah. uh, God uh, speaks to Israel about this, um, you know, it, multiple times in the Old Testament, you know, saying, um, you know, care for the sojourner, treat right. the sojourner as you would yourself, for you were once sojourners in Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. Uh, God ties how, how the Israelites see the sojourner to their own deliverance, their own understanding of salvation, and to how they see God himself. And and Jesus really does the same thing in Matthew 25, in the mm-hmm. parable of the sheep and the goats, with, you know, welcoming the stranger. And if you didn't, you know, you didn't welcome Jesus. And so this says, I, I don't start with government policy. I don't start with, 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 with um, you know, with the images we see on cable news and, and all of the rhetoric around immigration. I start with how do you see people? How do you see uh, people in need? And then how, how could you particularly welcome them? Because they're immigrants or refugees in your own neighborhood. They're right. in your own community. Right. And so if seeing people at the border makes you angry or or you want to reject people, then that's going to play into how you see your own neighbors. It's going to play into how, how you see the vulnerable in your own community. And, um, and so we need to make sure that we keep a tender heart. Then mm-hmm. from there, uh, we have a lot more opportunity to develop good good solutions of compassion as part of the equation. And that's, in my writing for the Bulwark and, and other publications, that's kind of a theme that I've, I've hit on is, is um, I know that it's a very complicated situation. There's much to be considered, but let's let compassion be one of the factors that's helping us come to solutions. On yeah, this. that's so good, Alan. Again, Alan Cross is the lead pastor of Petaluma Valley Baptist Church in Petaluma, California. We're talking to him about his article, Securing the Border Without Hardening Our Hearts. So, Alan, Brian and I are both pastors. We're in the Chicago area. Um, you know, we feel like perhaps a little bit distant from what's happening in Haiti and what's happening at the border. Um, talk to pastors for a little bit. How can we respond? How can the church respond to um, these crises? Yeah, well, well, first of all, realizing that you're not you're not far as far away as you think you mm-hmm. are. Um, there are are people 
all in, in your community, um, all around you who are connected to things that are happening. Um, you know, we have a Haitian population here in the San Francisco North Bay, and there are some Haitians in, in my church. And so when the, when the earthquake happened, uh, you know, we became, uh, you know, very aware of their family members and, you know, how, how can we help? How can we support, um, with, with ministries there? And they, they start to see that they're refugees who have fled. And so there are people who are connected and just in prayer and, and showing concern. Um, uh, you know, I've had things like this happen and I mentioned it from the pulpit just to pray. And, and, uh, and, uh, people came up to me afterwards who, who are from Haiti and they said, thank you for, mm. for thinking of us. Thank mm. you for mentioning our family. Wow. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're thousands of miles away, but yet we find we're a lot more connected. You know, the same with Afghan refugees right. um, who who have fled uh, this area where we are in California, from Sacramento to to East Bay. Um, uh, a lot of it's, it's the largest concentration of Afghan refugees, and so we've we've sort of like, how can we help? You know, welcome Afghan refugees and, and minister uh, to people who are coming, and and so just kind of opening your eyes to your own community and seeing who's there. What are the, who are the immigrant populations? What have they gone through? Getting to know people, especially first generation immigrants, asking them about their experiences. You might have them in your churches. You might have them in your community. Um, but then to say, what can the church do to minister? You know, how can we bless people? And again, when I, when I talk about this, I always get pushback of people saying, "Oh, you want open borders and things like that." That's a lie. That's not true. Mm. Um, I, I think security is important because it's important that people come the right way, but it's also mm-hmm. important that, that people um, don't have chaos and that they're not subject to, to human traffickers and all of the, all these different things, but we need ways for people to come and we, we need it to be an orderly you know, fashion that that's for us and for them. So when you, but when you're talking about ministry and how do you see people and that's mm-hmm. as a pastor, that's the main thing I want to say, this is so polarized and people get, you know, they, they form these really hard, strong opinions with I, which I used to have before I knew I, I had really strong opinions about all of this, but I didn't know anything that was going on. I didn't know mm. personal stories I've been through. And so I had firm opinions with no knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah. and that, that was about nine or 10 years ago. And I began to learn. And once I began to learn, I realized the whole thing was totally unlike what I thought. It was very different. And, and, um, and my eyes just began to open to the human, to the human side of it. And so if the church can minister into the human side of things, if you can see the immigrants and refugees in your own community, if you can minister to them and love them, um, then we have a voice to speak yeah. both on our behalf, and we can call for justice, and we can also minister the gospel to people. And okay. so that's that's where I really ask people to consider first. The rest of it, um, those are other discussions, and there are policy discussions to be had, and they're important discussions. But the role of the church is very clear that we're to be salt and light, we're to minister. So that's how I would encourage pastors that's to good. train to train the hearts of their people in compassion um, and then see what God does with that and where he might lead us. That's okay. really good. Alan, I want to change course just a little bit. It's always good having another pastor on the line. And I'd love to ask you just what you see going on in the church uh, as it relates to the pandemic. You're in California. We're in Illinois, two of the states that are still pretty shut down. Um, wondering what it's been like for you personally to pastor in and through this pandemic and kind of on a larger scale, how do you think this is going to change the church going forward? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's been a, I mean, San Francisco Bay Area has been probably the strictest, mm-hmm. if not, you know, if not the strictest, one of the most strict areas in the whole country. Um, even, you know, California has been really strict, but the Bay Area has jumped out in front of state decisions um and the seven the seven counties which which were in one of those counties um in the north bay and so yeah it's it's been hard from day one we've we've really tried to to push as hard as we can to do ministry um to 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 do as much as we can as a church um while doing it safely um and make sure we're protecting people and that we're kind of fitting with the, the community expectations so we met outside for a year 
uh, almost. And um, you know, we we continue to to try to be careful and and, and uh, you know take precautions and open windows and doors and airflow and. You know, as, as we get to this Delta variant, um, we were under a mask, indoor mask mandate in our county. So we're just trying to follow that, but at the same time, be as aggressive as we can mm. in doing ministry, whether that mm. was online or whether that's in person. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of the, of, the, of the happy medium that we have to, you know, that is before us. You know, how do we protect people, yeah. but how do we not back up when it comes to being the church? You know, and I've, I've seen churches go to both extremes where they don't follow any precautions at all, and they just say whatever happens, happens. And then I've seen other churches that just shut down, and they mm-hmm. just are, don't do anything, and the people aren't receiving ministry. So we have, a, we have a mandate to protect people. We also have a mandate to hold out the gospel and make sure mm-hmm. that we're doing all we can. And so I feel like we've, we've done that well here, um, again, under the strictest guidelines or, or, or strictest mandate in the country. Yeah. We've continued, and we've seen people come to Christ and be baptized. And, you know, um, it's been hard, though. It's been really hard, yeah. and some people, um, you know, uh, you know, don't always agree with what everything you do, and they think you should do this. Um, yeah, but, but I think that that's the challenge across the country. Yeah. You know, for pastors, how Absolutely. do you how do you navigate all this? You know. That is definitely the challenge. Brian and I, I think we told you, Brian and I are both pastors, so everything you're saying, we're just nodding our heads vigorously <laughs> right now. Yes, that is the, that's the line you have to walk right now. I'd love to talk with you, Ellen, for a minute about your book, When Heaven and Earth Collide, Racism, Southern Evangelicals, and the Better Way of Jesus. That book actually came out in 2014, but it feels like a very 2021 book. So can you talk yeah. to us about that book? Well, yeah, when I wrote it, um, I was a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama, and I started thinking about these questions around in the mid-2000s. You know, where does where does racism come from? How is it still affecting the church? We had white churches, black churches. The racial divide was still very present, and we, I was trying to bridge that as a pastor, um, as a Southern Baptist pastor. And so I wanted to explore and understand better. How do these things, there was violence. So when Freedom Myers came to Montgomery, there was violence. And how, how do these things happen? Why did they happen in a city full of churches in the South, the Bible Belt? And so the answers I had been given was, well, that's just the way things were, and things are better now. Don't ask any more questions, you know? So, um <laughs> But I realized that wasn't right. Like this developed, and so I studied and researched and talked to people who were, who were present in the civil rights movement in the '60s and and people who lived through it. And I just began to explore and did this massive uh, kind of like an uh, investigative um, personal journey. Um, it's it kind of like a memoir, but I really got into history and, and what happened. Um, I have a history background, and so I used all those skills. And, mm. And, uh, and so it came out in 2000, it was published in February 2014 from New South Books, which is a, which was not a Christian publisher. The gospel's all through it. And they had never published a book by an evangelical, but they did. Um, wow. uh, Christian publishers weren't really interested in it. Um, mm. But it came out about six months before Ferguson happened. Wow. And wow. So, yeah. So it was, I really felt like I was kind of like writing a little bit of a prophetic impulse to, to like write it. this and, and get this out. But it's, um, it's really timely. Um, uh, people read it. To this day, I've, I've led churches through it. I've, I've done um, with church leadership teams. I just did a couple of sessions last year um, and this year with with the churches, guiding their leadership through it and their church members um, across the country on Zoom. We can do that now, you know. So that's been kind of cool. But um, but it's yeah, it's, I, I've been shocked by how looking back to what happened and how the church failed on issues of slavery and race um, and, and and other things. Uh, we can understand um, kind of these deeper impulses in the church in America, and then how the cross is the solution. Uh, for it. So um, instead of protect your way of life, I, I talk about sacrificial love and, mm-hmm. and the theology of the cross as the way out. But yeah, it's, it's incredibly relevant, and it's, it's kind of interesting because it's a little bit, it's kind of frozen in amber in a way because it came out before all of these latest troubles yep. in the last seven years right. really emerged, and so it's not a reaction to anything present day. 
But wow. if you read it, you really understand that what we're experiencing right now is not new. It's mm-hmm. been going on for a couple hundred years and um, or more. And but we do have ancient solutions in the gospel and in the cross of Christ that can yeah. help us navigate it. So that's that's what the book's about. That's a really good word, Alan. I'd encourage people to go pick that book up again. It's called "When Heaven and Earth Collide: Racism, Southern Evangelicals, and the Better Way of Jesus." Uh, Alan, let's close this way. So you've lived, I look at your Twitter bio, you've lived across the South. I don't know if you're a football fan, but you've been in New Orleans and Alabama. <laughs> like, how does yeah. one how does one live in SEC country and choose one? Like, who's your team? I'm wondering, <laughs> from all these places you've lived. I know, it's complicated. Well, I, I'm from New Orleans. My family's from New Orleans for like 100 years. And so I love New Orleans. It's my my home. Uh, so I grew up an LSU fan because that was my, my – uh, my dad and grandfather, and a New Orleans Saints fan, which which has never wavered. Um, so <laughs> that and everything, but uh, but but then grew up right across the state line in Mississippi. Um, so I w- when I went to college, I had to go 250 miles north of Mississippi State. So that's my school I graduated from. Oh wow! So I love the Bulldogs. Yeah, and uh, and I pull for them. But then but then minister in Alabama. Yeah, where everybody's in Auburn or Alabama. Right. So my, my wife is an Alabama graduate, and so. Um, but but I, I I refuse to bow the knee. So LSU is my heart team. It's my, it's my it's my degree, and I love them too. And uh, and now we're out in California. And um, but but the Saints kind of tie us all together. As that's, a family. That's, awesome. that's awesome. Well, Alan Cross is the lead pastor of Petaluma Valley Baptist Church in Petaluma, California. The author of When Heaven and Earth Collide. Racism, Southern Evangelicals, and the Better Way of Jesus. We've been talking with him about that, about his article at the Bulwark, Securing the Border Without Hardening Our Hearts. Alan, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Alan, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Thank you all for having me on. You can connect with Alan on Twitter at Alan L. Cross. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.